Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Decatur City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, we would love it if you would take just a moment to download the Decatur City Church app where you can find access to all of our recent message content. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope you enjoy the following presentation and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Well, this morning, um, kind of like we did last week, I just want us to jump right in. But, uh, but before we, we start the, the message, I feel like I need to get something off of, of my chest. And so um, I, I don't know how you guys are going to respond to this. I actually feel a little apprehensive to, to share this. This is me being really vulnerable. Um, but uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, you may not know this, but um, I grew up, um, shall we say, OTP? Like, uh, we've chosen to raise our kids here now. I understand, like, I get it. It's a big deal. Like, you know, the hair on the back of your neck stands up when your car, like, accidentally drifts north, and you're like, what am I doing? Where am I? Where am I going? But, like, I I grew up way out in the burbs. Um, In fact, it was the sticks um, when I was there, and uh, it was a small little town called Woodstock, and you know, you, you think anytime you find yourself, you know, you've, you've clearly gotten lost, but you find yourself outside of the city, you think it's hard to find a trendy brunch spot now outside of the city? Like, imagine Woodstock circa 1985. Like, that's, that's my childhood. Um, it just didn't happen. Um, it's, it's up and coming now. Like, it's a hot, hot spot, and lots of people uh, enjoy it. And I loved living there. And uh, obviously, a lot changed when we moved into the city, though. Like, we, we love it. We have the opportunity to raise our kids here. Uh, we have a great house, great neighbors. We can walk everywhere. Trendy brunch spots are a dime a dozen here. Um, I did hold on to my truck. That was the one thing I held on to. It's really loud. You probably heard it around town. It like doesn't fit the city vibe at all, but, but, but I kind of like it. But I noticed when we moved into town, like a lot more than just the restaurants changed, like um, the bumper stickers changed <laughs> a lot. Like where I was from, people were having tea parties and, and like honking for freedom and stuff. And then we, we got here and the cars look more like this one. And, and, you know, they have their ideals too. And like, what, this, is, this is an amazing phenomenon to me, by the way, that we take one of our most valuable assets and then we plaster our opinions all over them, knowing that our opinions are going to change in, in two years. But we're stuck with the, you know, we're stuck with the remnants of it. And everybody gets into this game. Like you, you've seen this one. Uh, my kid beat up your honor student. Like... That's great. Like, that's somebody you want to be friends with, isn't it? You just, man, it's good on you. Or this one, you've, whoop, or this one, you've probably seen this one too. Uh, if you can read this, you are too close. Um, you know, okay, you know, fair warning. Christians get into this. We have our version of this. Do you follow Jesus this close? Right? Nothing says I want to inspire you to have a relationship with the creator of the universe like this warning. You know, or you've seen this one. My boss is a Jewish carpenter. Yeah, I mean, I wonder what their actual boss thinks. Like, no, I'm, no, I'm not. Like, why would you call me that? What is, what is that? But my, my all-time favorite is this one right here. Jesus is my co-pilot. Or maybe you've seen it, God is my co-pilot. I love it because the implication is that somehow I'm in control, Right. Like, imagine I've got, like, both hands on the wheel, 10 and 2, because I'm a responsible adult, like, you know, driving the speed limit. But, but I got God right here in my, in my passenger seat, just in case it's like, oh, Jesus, take the wheel for a second. Like, I'm, you know, I, I got a problem. Like, but ultimately, like, I'm Luke Skywalker in the story. You're R2-D2. Let's make sure we have the, the roles figured out, because you're just 
my co-pilot, right? And, and this is such a juvenile idea when we, actually, when we actually think about it, but that's kind of what we're running face into with this, with this whole series, right? Is that a lot of these big, like complex, like principles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus we learned when we were younger, like we, we learned them when we were children. And so we approach a complex, complicated series of books like we find in what we call the Bible from this kind of immature, like holdover from when we were a child point of view. And what we've been talking about is that there are just some stories in here that I think have some really great truths for us but we have to clear up some stuff. We have to kind of grow up in some ways so that we can really get underneath like how big a deal these stories really are. Stories like this one, David and Goliath. This is what we're gonna talk about today. This is a, this is a story that I, I love. Um, I actually think most of us are really familiar with it. I think we're probably all kind of starting at the same place because if you grew up in church, you've certainly heard this story. Um, but if you didn't grow up in church, this has become a leadership fable now. In fact, if you've been to any trendy conference on leadership lately, you've heard a version of this story. You know, the young startup or the, the young entrepreneur can outwit the champion and can totally, you know, up, upend the market and they, can, they too can beat their Goliath, right? But um, today, to get us started and to kind of make sure we're all coming from the same spot, I don't want to I don't wanna look at just the Sunday school version or I don't wanna look at uh, the leadership fable. Today, what I would love for us to do is I'd love for us to start with um, what I would call the vacation Bible school version, which if you didn't grow up in church, that's an actual subculture thing of, of Christianity. The, the vacation part was that parents needed a, a vacation from their kids and uh, the Bible school part was what the kids got. And what was great is every church in the community offered it at different weeks. So parents got like a whole summer vacation and we got a whole summer Bible study. It was just like, it was such a great trade-off. But um, hopefully you didn't hear the story in Vacation Bible School exactly, should I say, like we're gonna tell it, but uh, we're gonna have some fun with it so that it really gets the point across. But um, maybe you've heard it something like this. Boys and girls, this is the story of David and Goliath, written by God. A story of how God can help you do anything. Once upon a time, there was a shepherd boy named David who had secret magical powers. He was the bravest boy in all the kingdom of Israel. In this kingdom, everyone was afraid of a nasty, rotten, evil giant named Goliath. Even the king's soldiers were too afraid to face the terrifying giant. Ah, but not David. He might have been small, but he was brave. And he had secret magical giant-killing powers after all. So David told the scaredy-cat king, I'll go kill the big bad giant. God loves me and is on my side, so I 100% believe he's going to help me out. The king agreed but insisted that David wear clunky armor and carry a heavy sword. And eh, no thanks, said David. I don't need all this fancy stuff. I've got magical powers and the God of the universe on my side. So this whole killing giants thing should be a cinch. So David rushed headlong into battle, armed with absolutely nothing but a slingshot and a head full of courage. And his magical powers, of course. Goliath, nine feet tall and feeling invincible, 
laughed at the boy and his God. <laughs> and just like that, David used his magical slingshot and curiously strong belief in God to slay the giant better than Adoram. So, be like David, be brave, believe in God no matter what, and you too will live happily ever after and never ever face another metaphorical or literal giant ever again. Now, don't you feel better about your comparatively small problems? I know I do. The end. Now, obviously, neither Paul nor I believe that David had magical powers, and we had a little bit of fun with that story. But uh, you get the idea, right? Like, as a kid, you would hear this story, and we would, we would just, you know, like, blow past the, 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 the fact that two global powers are about to have war with one another, that two countries are in a deadlock, that there's all the bloodshed and the gore and the, the grief that comes along with a real war. And, like, we just move into this idea that, like, hey— with God on your side, you can do anything. Like just have a little more faith, have a little more courage, and you too can be like David. And in short, we, we take a story like this and we give it two main questions. We ask ourselves and we look at this story, what, what about me and how does this help me? We, we take the story and we make it about ourselves. And of course, if we're gonna make the story about ourselves, I mean, who are we in the story? Well, obviously we're David because David's the cool one and he's the hero and we all wanna be David. So obviously what I have to do is figure out how to act or be like David. And maybe that worked for you when you were a child, right? Maybe the, the giants in your life were small enough that, that maybe you could just muster up a little bit more faith. You could muster up just a little bit more courage and you could, you could slay those metaphorical giants. But then you started growing up and the world around you started growing up and the, 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 the quote giants in your life got, got bigger and the problems got more real and all of a sudden this, this thing that felt like faith all of a sudden started feeling more like a, like a fairy tale or it started feeling like folklore. It certainly didn't feel like an authentic faith that could help you. And so you, you took this story and you, you put it on the shelf like so many others out of this library that we've been talking about. And you said, well, it must not be for me, maybe I'm not a good follower of Jesus. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe faith doesn't work. And so we, we ignored it. And when we, and when we do that, and we've been talking about this, we, we run the risk of missing so many of the really progressive and enlightened ideas and ideals for how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to go about life and how we're supposed to problem solve that are outlined in this collection of books that we call the Bible. Ideas and ideals that we still fall short of. And so what we, what we have said is that like, hey, even though we struggle with this, the thing we have to keep in mind when it comes to a story like this is ultimately someone finally wrote something down. Remember, this is an oral tradition. This is an oral culture. They handed down their big stories, but all of a sudden, something happened. When we bump up against a story like this, we have to remember, hey, something happened that was so significant that somebody finally took the time to write it down. And what we've been saying is that if we don't pay attention to why it was written down, we're gonna run the risk of missing what this story is trying to say. So when we look at this story, we have to remember something transformative happened. Something big happened, not just something crazy, not just something outlandish, but something that people said, hey, we have to make sure 
this particular story doesn't get messed up, that this story gets carried on, that people forever can lean in to a story like this. So today, what I want us to do is I want us to re-examine this story and I wanna give it all of its seriousness that it, that it deserves, take it out of the pages of a childhood book and, and like really give this story the treatment so that we can figure out what's going on, why was this written down and how is it important for you and I today? So to do that, Keep in mind, we're gonna be somewhere over here in like modern day Palestine, all right? There's two countries that are about to collide in what we would call this Palestine area. There's, there's the Philistines, which is a, like a seafaring people from, from Greece. They're actually from the island of Crete right here. And they're gonna sail across the Mediterranean and they're gonna try to land in uh, here in the, in the valley of the, it's like the Shephelah Valley region. This particular valley is the Valley of, of Ella or Allah, depending on how you wanna pronounce that. But basically their hope is that they're gonna land in this super strategic region. They're gonna go to this one valley, Valley of Elah, and then that ultimately they could march all the way to Jerusalem. And from that valley, if they could get to Jerusalem, they could split Israel right in two, and then they would be able to divide and conquer and take over this entire nation. So I wanna show you what this valley looks like as we continue to zoom in. This is kind of what it looked like. I mean, obviously there wasn't a car driving down the road at the time, and there probably wasn't this gorgeous farm here. But so what's going on in this, in this picture here, the Mediterranean's on this side. So you have a ridge right here. I don't know if you can see that from where you are. It kind of goes like that. And you have the Philistines and they are on this ridge. They have taken what they believe to be the strategic high ground. They have covered this whole ridgeline. Well, Israel gets word of this. And so they've moved in from the mainland to this ridge right here. And they are believing they have the strategic high ground. And so neither one of these two armies are wanting to come down here into this valley. And so you have two you know, superpowers in this deadlock. And so what we don't think about is like tons of resources are being wasted at this moment. Money is being spent, food is being devoured, soldiers are getting frustrated, leadership is being questioned, and you have two armies completely deadlocked, neither wanting to go down into the valley because whoever goes down into the valley first loses the high ground, puts themselves in a vulnerable position and will probably lose the war. So the Philistines do something kind of interesting. Instead of taking their whole army, they send one individual. It's like the Super Bowl. This person just kind of broke out. Uh, they send one individual down here into the valley. And what we know about this individual is that this person's name was Goliath. He was a Philistine champion from the tribe of Gath. He came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. Now, this, this seems a little odd to us because why would one person come down to take on a whole army? Well, that's not what's happening here at all. This is a, a, this is a military strategy of that day to break up a deadlock like this and to prevent massive amounts of bloodshed and the continuing wasting of resources. Typically, one side would send a soldier down. They would challenge the other side, and that side would send a soldier down, and they would have one-on-one, mano-a-mano, like the ultimate cage fight, like death match, and whichever soldier won, that army won, and everybody else got to go home and live and, and you know, fight another day. But the Philistines don't just send anybody. They send a champion. They send a warrior that you've heard is huge, right? And not only is he huge, he has all the state-of-the-art weaponry. He has new fancy armor. Like he is light years ahead of anything the Israelites have. So we hear this, we say, well, what are the Israelites gonna do? Well, they do nothing. 
They have a champion too. His name is Saul. It's their king. And Saul is hiding out in his tent, terrified, unable to lead, unable to fight, unwilling to go down and face the giant. And so none of his soldiers are willing to go down and face the giant, right? So now you have Goliath standing in this valley and for 40 days, he's making fun of Israel. For 40 days, he's he's talking about their mama. He's talking about their daddy. He's calling out their God. He's making fun of their country. He's doing everything he can to rile them up and nothing gives. Well, as you can imagine, in a, in a battle like this one, we don't live in war times anymore, so it's hard for us to get our minds around this, but like in a, in a war, like families are, are ripped apart. And one such family was definitely the case. There was a dad, his name was Jesse, and he had three sons who were older, and they're on the front line. They're waiting for Saul to give orders so that they can attack or do whatever they have to do. And he has a younger son named David, and David's staying back home. He's making sure the family's taken care of. He's doing all that. But they apparently live close enough that David can go to the battle lines every single day and take lunch to his brothers. So one day, David shows up, lunch in hand, and he hears Goliath. And Goliath is just wearing people out. Now remember, David is a hot-headed young teenager who has not put any kind of filter in place yet. And so David starts talking trash too. David starts causing a stir with all the Israelite army. He hears Goliath making fun of his God and he gets mad. And he's like, where's Saul? Where's the leader? Who's in charge here? I can solve this problem. I got this. Well, the army starts going into chaos. And this word starts to spread. And sure enough, it gets back to Saul and Saul is frustrated. So Saul calls for David. He says, hey, you come meet with me. And you would think that David would back down. But remember, hot-headed teenager, no filter, like feels like he can conquer the world. David starts telling Saul off and he's like, hey, I got this. And so finally, Saul looks at David and the author says that he finally consented. He says, all right, go ahead. I mean, you think you, think you got this, go ahead and may the Lord be with you. And we read that and we're like, oh, Saul is so spiritual, but he's not. This is like, and God bless you, good luck, you know, like. But here's what Saul does. Saul sees an out. Saul's got a problem that he can't solve. He's got a champion on the field causing all kinds of problems. He knows he can't beat him. He knows he can't overcome him. And so Saul goes, hey, I'm gonna send a sacrificial lamb down. I'm gonna send this boy. This boy thinks he can figure this out. I'm gonna send him down into the valley and he can get killed because that's what's gonna happen. And we're gonna lose this strategic battle, but we'll regroup and we can live to fight another day. And maybe just maybe we can overcome the Philistines on another day. But Saul's gonna make it look good. And so he loads David up with his armor and his helmet and his shield and his sword and probably his armor bearer. And he's like, hey, I got you, you're set. This is gonna look great. And David says, no, 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 I can't do any of this. None of this is gonna work for me. He takes it all off. He bends down, he picks up five stones. He's got a slingshot in his stones and he runs down into the valley to take on Goliath. Well, as you can imagine, Goliath is furious. He's embarrassed. He doesn't feel like he's being taken seriously. He sees this boy charging down at him. So Goliath ramps up his trash talking game to which this teenager, who again, no filter, starts trash talking himself. He's like, hey, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. I see your fancy weapons. You look all right. I got you, Goliath, but check it out. I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Oh yeah, take that. Try that on for size. Today, the Lord will conquer you. And oh yeah, I will kill you and I will cut off your head. And then 
after I kill you and cut off your head, I'm gonna give the dead bodies of all of your men to the birds and wild animals. This is totally a story we should read to kids at night. Like, this is fantastic, right? I'm gonna feed the birds and animals with your dead bodies, and the whole world, Goliath, will know that there is a God in Israel. And everybody assembled here will also know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. I don't need your fancy weapons because I've got God on my hands. And what happens next is like the, the stuff that legends are made out of, right? Like if you know the story, you're familiar. Goliath is enraged. He's thinking they're about to engage in hand-to-hand combat, which he is the, the master of. That's why he was sent down there. So he rushes this teenage boy knowing he's got this made. And, and David completely changes the rules of engagement on him. So as Goliath is running, he grabs one of those stones that he picked up, loads a slingshot, pulls it back and fires it right at his unprotected head. And like, he is just like, Goliath is stunned and this stone is coming at him. And we don't, we don't think about this, but like at that time, this was state-of-the-art weaponry. Like that, that was one of the most advanced deadly weapons they had. And at that range and speed and all that, like with David's accuracy, it probably hit Goliath somewhere with like the stopping power of a 45 caliber pistol. Like that's what hit him right between the eyes. So of course, Goliath falls like face first. He is out. Well, David doesn't stop. He's going to be a man of his word. So he charges this fallen uh, Goliath. He grabs Goliath's sword. He cuts off his head. Maybe he holds his head up for all to see. I don't know, but chaos ensues. The Philistines are freaking out. Their champion is dead. They're running towards the coast. Saul is doing whatever Saul's doing. The Israelite army sees David on the field. They rush down to help him. They chase down the Philistines and they totally trounce them, and yes, the birds and the wild beast had a feast that day. And Israel is saved, end of story, legend, right? But here's the thing. Now that we know the like Quentin Tarantino, R-rated, starring Russell Crowe version of this story, like it still doesn't really help us, right? Like ultimately we're still left with the question, like why do we have this story to start with. Like, what are we supposed to do with this story? And ultimately, how do I get my mind around the fact that like a child just defeated a champion? Because ultimately, I think that's what so many of us have a hard time with, right? Like we have a hard time because we're like, yeah, I get it. Sure, it's plausible, but it's still just way too good to be true. But here's something I want us all to remember when we think about a story like this. I know it comes across as way too good to be true. I know it comes across as way too big and, and way too epic and, and all of those things. But um, even though it's crazy to us, like they didn't write this story down because it was crazy. They didn't write this story down because it was epic. They didn't write this story down because it was too good to be true for them. They wrote this story down because it was important to them. And what we have to remember first with a story like this is ultimately these stories are about them and they are about then. Yes, they do somehow speak to us now and they do change the way we think and feel about everything. But first and foremost, these stories were not about us. Israel would not have read the story looking for them necessarily in the story either. This was a piece of their history. Remember, we talked about this library we have is filled with all kinds of different genres of writing. Well, this was a historical narrative. And so this was a a moment in their history that they would look back on. And and to them, it wasn't crazy. But here's here's what it says to them. And here's what I think we have to get our minds around so that we can really embrace this story. Um, This story 
it's not really about a giant. Uh, it's not even really about a boy killing a giant. Yes, that happens in the story. Yes, that, that, that was something in their history, but th that's not what the story is about. And, and in fact, Israel, the people to whom this was written, they would have run past the giant part real quick because here's the thing. For them, the giant wasn't their problem because Israel had their own giant. Israel had their king, Saul, and he was the most handsome man, which is fantastic, right? Who wouldn't want to be that? Most handsome man in all Israel. But for us, look at there. He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. Now, like, I have no idea how tall Goliath was. Maybe he was nine feet tall. Most scholars believe he was seven feet tall. I mean, you're talking Shaquille O'Neal. Like, that's a beast, right? That's a tall drink of water, right? No doubt about it. Like, Saul, or Goliath was an impressive person. But, I mean, are we, are, can we assume that maybe the second tallest person in all of Israel was like, what, like five, seven? I mean, that puts Saul at at least six, seven, right? Like, Saul was an impressive person as well. He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. The reality in this story is that, yeah, Israel had a giant problem, but their problem wasn't a giant. Their problem was their king. Their problem was their first king, King Saul. You see, Israel had never had a king until Saul. Israel didn't need a king. They had a God. And a God was way better than a king. And like we looked at last week, this God wanted to rule them and lead them and govern them through relationship. And for hundreds of years, that had worked for them. They had followed God. They didn't need a king. But all of a sudden, Israel looked up one day and said, we, we want to be like everybody else. We, we too want a king and we want a great king. We want a handsome king. We want a tall king. We want a champion who will represent not only our country, but will represent God. We want a king and their king was their problem because their king was nowhere to be found. In fact, even Goliath knew that their real problem was Saul because this is the way he taunted them. He said, I am a Philistine champion. You, you're just, you're servants of Saul. If you were the nation of Israel then, this would have been like a backhand to the face. It would have been the most insulting thing you could hear because you weren't supposed to be servants of Saul. You were, you were servants of God. The creator of the universe wanted to walk with you and, and talk with you and, and lead you in a relationship and you didn't need a king, but they insisted. They, they insisted, they demanded that God give them a king so they could be just like everybody else and Where's this king? Nowhere to be found. He's, he's hiding. He's cowering in fear at the moment of their greatest need. And what was interesting about this society is that they would, they would look to their leader to give them clues about how God was gonna behave. And so according to their king that they insisted on having, God must stand on the sidelines and he must cower in fear when we need him the most. God must be useless when it comes to the big problems that I face. So Israel wouldn't have had a problem with the giant. They would have moved right past the giant. They would have said the giant was no big deal. They would have said, this isn't a tale about a giant. This isn't even really a tale about a boy. This is the tale of two kings. The, the, the king we were supposed to want and the king we ultimately wanted. 
And as they thought about that and they looked back on their own history and they tried to figure out exactly why this story was important and why they couldn't let this story get messed up and why it had to be passed on, they would have looked at all of that and they would have said, oh yeah, this God is different because kings are supposed to be different and God told us about this. And so this must be another story that's not just too crazy to believe, that's not just too unbelievable, that's not just too you know, far-fetched. This must be another story in the narrative that God is writing to remind us that he is completely and utterly different. I love the way Tim Keller, author and pastor, talks about stories like this one. He says, there, there are only two ways to read the Bible. Is it basically about me? Or is it basically about Jesus? In other words, is it what must I do? Or is it what he has already done? And if we think about that, and we think about the history of Israel and what we already know about God from looking a little bit last week, and we, we begin to apply that lens to a story like this one, all of a sudden we begin to get the idea that this is a story pointing to a totally different king. This is a story pointing to a king named Jesus, a king that would come years later. And when we think about this story through that lens, through the arc of this entire library, understanding that this is a foreshadowing of this king that is going to come for them and for us, we begin to see in this story some things that are really worth writing down. We begin to see some things that are worth sacrificing the time and the effort and the resources and the, and the energy to make sure that they get recorded. You, you see, you have Israel and they're, and they're stuck, right? They're in a deadlock with a, with a giant that they can't defeat. They have no way out. They're going to lose this battle. Even their king knows they're going to lose this battle. Insert David. If you're an Israelite reading this story, the name of David would have jumped off the page for you because he would go on to be the greatest king in their history. He would go on to be the king that would replace Saul and, and he would be named a king that was after God's own heart. And all of a sudden, David does something different than their king. David doesn't cower in fear on the sidelines. David doesn't give them a pep talk. David doesn't encourage them to go with him. David runs into the battle for them. David's willing to lay down his life. The king, the future king, is willing to give up his life for his people. And when you begin to look at the story through that lens, what you begin to see is that ultimately we come upon this idea that God doesn't wanna leave the fight up to you. Ultimately, God is in the fight for you. God is, is, like, is like David and David points towards this king, Jesus, that's going to come. He's not on the, he's not on the sideline of our lives. He, he's not the co-pilot. For goodness sake, he's not the co-pilot hoping that we don't need him to take over the wheel for a second. Like He's not cheering for us, hoping that we can figure out the courage to fight or somehow find some faith that we didn't know we had so that we could face that giant. Because here's the reality, when we look at the stories that are collected here, something pops off of these pages. No matter where you turn in this collection of books, one thing is gonna be evident, that we have some serious problems. And I know it's not popular to say anymore, but the greatest problems that we have, the greatest problems that we could face are sin and death. And they might as well be our Goliath because we can't overcome them. 
We can't conquer them. We can't outfaith them. We can't outcourage them. We can't find a second dose of faith or an extra blessing or anything like that. Like none of that is going to work because ultimately we cannot defeat the thing that is our single greatest problem. We cannot conquer sin and death. We don't need an example. We don't need a fairy tale. We don't need a fable. We need a champion. We need a king, not who's gonna sit on the sidelines and hope the best for us, not a co-pilot who's gonna take the wheel when we need it. We need a king who's gonna charge head first into the battle for us, who's going to fight for us to overcome those. And that's exactly what Jesus did. If you read the rest of the story, you understand that Jesus came to earth and he conquered sin. He overcame death because he knew we couldn't do it. He knew we didn't stand a chance. And he took those giants on for you and for me so that we never had to face them. So come on. So many people are unnecessarily walking away from faith. They're walking away from Jesus. They're walking away from truth because they opened this book and all they know is little fairy tales and little fables. And I don't know about you, but I'm tired of a faith that rests or hangs in the balance of a fairy tale version of what actually happened. And here's the good news. You don't have to. You don't have to. If somebody handed you faith and they, they told you that it all depends on, on some fairy tale that you have to hold to, you don't have to do that. Your faith hangs in the balance of what your Savior fulfilled for you. And what I love about this story is it's just another story that fits into the arc of the story that God is writing that points us to that truth. Last week, we looked that, that mankind on its own had no righteousness and, and blamelessness, but God was willing to replace that with relationship. And this week, we look at a story and we understand that we don't have to muster up any kind of courage or any kind of faith or hope that we can make it on our own or hope that God will take the wheel at the right time. This week, we understand that we have a rescuer. We have a savior. We understand that our God is a deliverer. Our God doesn't wanna leave the fight up to you and I. The ultimate fight, we can't even win that fight. Our God, it's right there in the fight for us. He's charging into that valley. He's willing to sacrifice himself for you and for me. And in my opinion, that, that moves this story forward. That, that's worth writing down. That's worth making sure people get it right. And more importantly for us, I think, I think that's a story that's worth taking seriously. So I don't know where you are, but if you're hanging on by a thread, if you're beginning to walk away from faith, if you're beginning to, to deconstruct to the point that you just don't think any of this is for you anymore, I wanna beg you, come back and take a second look. Come back and read it again and read it with this grown up understanding that this God is for you. And then when those giants do come, when the fear is too big, when the anxiety is just overwhelming, when the thought life is so destructive, then you know you can face those giants because you're not facing them alone. You have one who is in the fight for you, 
who's already gone ahead of you. And if he can overcome our greatest problems, if he can conquer sin and he can conquer death, then he can take care of us no matter what we face. So come on, come on back and take another look because I think it's worth it. Let's pray together. Father, we have so much to learn about who you are what you're doing in our lives and the story that you're writing is so much bigger. It's so much better than we ever thought it was. God, would you give us eyes to to read and to see and to understand how you're working, how you're moving, what you wanna do in our lives? Most importantly, would you you give us the, the wisdom to know what to do with that and then the courage to act? the courage to follow because it it takes courage to to surrender to the point to know, Father, that you are gonna run into the fight for me, that I don't have to fight this thing alone. I don't have to go through life alone. I've never actually been alone because you're in the fight with me and for me. And you've already gone ahead of me to conquer everything that I'll ever face. God, would you teach us to rest in that truth? We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.